who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by George Skangos. George is the former CEO of Biogen and the current president and CEO of Ver Biotechnology, a company that is developing new therapies to fight some of the world's most dangerous infectious diseases, including COVID-19. Here's host and Stanford structural biology professor, Jody Pugliese. The thing that touched me most about George is he was a professor at Johns Hopkins, uh, starting out as a professor when I was a, was a student there. Our paths never crossed because I was didn't uh, want to get my hands wet with biology. I was too busy uh, doing chemistry and physics at the time. Um, but that leads me to the, the question of his own life's trajectory and the exceptionally courageous move that he made in the 1980s to move from a cushy academic job into what was then the nascent field of biotechnology. And so um, I really just wanted to, to start off by asking George to maybe tell a little bit about his trajectory and you know, what, what, what pushed him to, uh, to make this jump from uh, academia to, to biotechnology. And um, you know, when, when you started off getting a PhD, I'm sure you had some vision of what it is you wanted to do. And you know, now sitting where you are now, you know, how is that path uh, diverged or, or, or met what you what you dreamed sure. of years ago. Okay. Well, first of all, let me say uh, thank you to you, uh, Ravi, and to Jody for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here today, and uh, this should be fun and interactive. And uh, uh, so I encourage people to, to ask questions. And um, look, I I um, graduated from Cornell. I was a bio major. I worked for a couple of years uh, for a company that manufactured laboratory supplies for microbiology labs. And I realized after a couple of years that I didn't really care if the labs bought our supplies or the supplies from our competitors, that they all worked fine. Right? And so it really made no difference. So that my efforts were, for, they were pointless, right? What was the point? But I, I'd also learned that I loved what was going on inside the labs. And that the, you know, the microbiology labs at Harvard, I was in Boston, or some of the large universities there were really doing fascinating things. And so I decided to go back to graduate school without much thought to what I would do after graduate school. As I went through, I became kind of the default career path to stay in academia. So I went on and did a postdoc uh, at, at Yale. Um, and then after that, you know, joined the faculty at Hopkins. Um, a few years later, my postdoc advisor, a guy named Frank Ruddle, um, uh, came down to uh, give a seminar at Hopkins. I had invited him down and came, came to give a seminar. And at that time, I learned he had, he was stepping down as department chair and he was starting a biotech company. And so I became an advisor to that little biotech company. And so once a week, I'd get on there once a month, I'd get on the train from uh, Baltimore and travel up to New Haven uh, to spend a day at the company and working on things. And in the, um, at that time, when I was a postdoc at, in Frank's lab, we had made the first transgenic mouse. And so there are only a few labs in the world at that time that could make transgenic mice. Now it's, everybody can do it, but it was, was new. And so I, they asked me and I agreed to take a sabbatical year, take a leave 
go to the company, set up a facility so that we could custom make disease models that would more closely mimic human disease. And we did that, and I did that. And I was quite taken by the work there. The science, quality of the science was great. Uh, it was way more collaborative than it was uh, in my academic experience. I think that's changed over time. But, um, and uh, I was really taken mostly by the idea of spending my time doing research for the real purpose of bringing forward drugs that would improve the lives of patients rather than <clears throat> kind of giving lip service to doing that at the end of an NIH grant, right? So, which I'm still doing. Yeah. yeah. So, so I stayed. I took a year to close down my lab, and um, you know. So, uh, but then I stayed. That little company was bought by uh, Bayer, big pharmaceutical company, uh, and I ended up working a decade for Bayer. I never, ever would have gone directly from Hopkins into uh, a large pharma company. That was kind of anathema to me, but. Uh, kind of my attitudes got laundered through this small biotech company. Right? Um, I spent a decade working for Bayer. Uh, I was, um, you know, head of R&D. I headed up their big, um, they, they made a separate business out of protein drugs, recombinant drugs that were also new. So I headed that business for a while. And then um, in, in about 10 years later, um, I became disenchanted or it wasn't one day when you become disenchanted, but over time I became frustrated with the over-reliance on process and how process sometimes trumped. <laughs> Sounds like an entrepreneurial moment. And, and so I thought this was ridiculous. And I did have a, there was an aha moment when I was at some offsite team building thing. And I just thought this was the most boring, ridiculous exercise I'd ever been part of. And I looked around and everybody else was into it and they, they liked it. So I said, okay, this is not the right place for me. Um, and I went to a little startup, you know, at, uh, called Exelixis at the time. It was 20 people, it was newly started. I wasn't a founder, but I was there soon after. Stayed there for uh, 14 years as CEO and took it public you know, a couple of drugs now on the market. So it was a success uh, for company. And then I went from there to, to Biogen, large uh, biotech company, on many billions of revenue now. And um, <clears throat> that was a really interesting experience. Uh, and then, um, but that was in Boston. My wife's on the faculty at UCSF. So that was a uh, transcontinental relationship we had. And so, you know, every weekend one of us would get on a plane but that gets old after a few years. And so I came back to the Bay Area and uh, we started Veer. And uh, here I am. So Which we'll talk about more and more yeah. in depth as we yeah. go through uh, the interview. But you know, as, during your, your voyage from academia to, to industry, were there any individuals in the world of biotech that uh, you know, were role models for you? And, and uh, you know, one of the things that certainly is a hallmark of your career is, are these leadership roles that you took up and, you know, are there certain models of leadership uh, that you learned uh, th from these people or, or from your own experience? Yeah, there, um, there, there are several people along the way. Look, if you think about who had an influence me, my postdoc advisor, Frank Riddle, you know, really great human geneticist, 
um, great biologist, great human being, lovely family. His wife's also a professor at Yale, uh, two lovely daughters. So I learned from Frank a lot about science, but a lot about how to have a career that was uh, quite consuming and still have a, a family and a normal, a normal life. Um, was a guy named Stelios Papadopoulos. So Stelios was a banker for um, a number of banks that were instrumental in, fun in funding the biotech industry in its early days and, and was instrumental in doing some of the most creative financings that were done. Today they're illegal, but they were, you know, they were illegal at the time. Um, and uh, helped to get the industry off the ground. And I met him. Which wasn't, which wasn't entirely clear that this was going to be a money-making operation. There was a lot it of business risk around biotechnology. Not at all. It was speculative. Um, a lot of people thought it was crazy, that the whole um, idea was kind of preposterous, and you could never replicate and make in bacteria or in some artificial system proteins that humans made that would be different. But, um, you know, he, he was uh, visionary. Uh, he, uh, you know, in making the transition from academia to industry, you don't know what industry is like, you know, and you know it only superficially. And you're, you're in a good situation, or at least I was in a good situation. So, um, you know, doing well and no, no reason to leave. Other, and so, when making that transition and jumping into the unknown and something new and speculative was not an easy one. Uh, not at all. And that's still the, the norm. This, uh, that was a courageous jump at the time. It, it, um, well, yeah, and all my colleagues at, at Hopkins thought I was either crazy or greedy or both. Right? If we fast forward to now, um, you know, now the biotech industry is a mature, you know, multi-billion, trillion-dollar industry, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know, what's changed in, in, in your view? And, 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 you know, and what are some of the remaining challenges? Well, uh, science has changed a lot. I mean, you know, even um, <laughs> like, you know, conceptually, what we were doing at Exelixis in... Uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, is conceptually the same as a lot of the work we're doing at Veer now, except at back then, we had to do these genetic analyses in fruit flies and C. elegans and worms, mm -hmm. and it would take six months to do an experiment. Today, you can do them directly in a mammalian system with CRISPR and get <clears throat> more, and more and more relevant information in three weeks. And so the the... And that's a combination of advances in the, you know, in, in biology and, you know, CRISPR yeah. and Jennifer Downey, who won yeah. the Nobel Prize in Charlotte yeah. Gates, uh, and in uh, data sciences, because you generate reams of data and you have to be able to make sense of it and parse through it. And there's too much to do in your head. So, uh, the, so those two things have changed. Um, there have been successes. You know, in the early days, it was easy things. It was insulin and just sure. factors that you normally made that now could be yeah. made in system. They were easy. And as the understanding of biology has gone on, things have gotten more sophisticated. You can do more challenging things. And um, there have been successes. So that means money has poured in. 
You know, there's uh, you have access to a level of resources now that was unheard of a decade ago. Uh, let's talk about the science and perhaps some of the business challenges around what you're doing right now, which I think uh, the audience will enjoy hearing about. It's immensely topical, which is your company Veer. Um, you know, what, what were some of the challenges you face there and maybe give an overview of, of, of what the company's doing right now and why it's sure. so exciting. Well, I'll tell you how we thought about Veer uh, at the beginning. There, there was, um, you know, we're focused on infectious diseases. And, you know, to start a company focused on infectious diseases is certainly counter to the prevailing views of the industry. Much of the pharma industry has either reduced their efforts on infectious disease or um, gotten out completely, just shuttered it. The mantra was you can't make money in infectious diseases. And really that's because of antibiotics. And, you know, I mean, you probably read, we desperately need new antibiotics <coughs> to treat resistant bacteria. The reason we need them so much and nobody's working on them is you really can't make money. <clears throat> that if you succeed and make a new antibiotic, um, it is reserved for last line use because physicians are appropriately concerned that overusing it will result in the development of resistance to that one too. So they want to save it for when it's truly needed. And so it's a low volume product. And because of the way the antibiotics are, are prescribed and treated, the, the price is capped. So it's a low priced product and it's an acute product. You take it for a few days or a couple of weeks, and then you're done. And the next time you get sick, there's no brand loyalty. You don't come back to that one. You take whatever you get prescribed for your next one. And so all of those things combine to make antibiotics a terrible business model. And there were biotech companies that made very good antibiotics that went bankrupt, even though they had approved drugs. And so on the other hand, Gilead, you know, in the Bay Area has you know, has tens of billions of dollars of revenue treating viral diseases, treating, you know, HIV, hepatitis C. Um, hepatitis C is also acute. You know, you take their drug for a short period of time, you're cured of hepatitis C. The, the, the well, irrational part is the healthcare system is willing to pay $30,000 to rid you of hepatitis C, but they're not willing to pay $4,000 to rid you of a antibiotic-resistant bacteria that will kill you. So um, it's not rational, but it's the way the healthcare system is. Um, so, but because so many of the companies had backed out, we saw a need. The huge infectious disease problems, you know, antibiotic-resistant bacteria are one. Flu, you know, tens of thousands of people die from flu every year. Hepatitis B, which, you know, infects to almost 300 million people around the world. TB infects a couple billion people around the world. So there's a huge public health need and for the right indications, also a tremendous amount of money to be made if we were to be successful. So we went all in on um, infectious diseases. Our goal was to be the the biotech company focused on infectious diseases and be able to compete head to head with whatever large companies were still in the running. We raised a lot of money. We raised almost $600 million initially. 
Um, and, and, you know, that is unusual. I think, you know, maybe the audience has an appreciation that that's an enormous war chest. That is, um, it's an order of magnitude more than most startups get, you know, most startups these days, a little more, maybe it's a hundred million, but it was 50 or 60 million. There's still a lot of money, right? Um, the idea was to go make some acquisitions, uh, sign some deals, um, hire in a really good uh, competent group of people um, and become, go forward really aggressively, roll up other assets in the biotech industry that were underfunded, underexploited, um, and become the leading biotech company in infectious diseases. So it was a pretty aggressive plan. Um, and we we're on our way. We had really interesting program. We have really interesting programs in flu and hepatitis B. We have a you know, a program with the Gates Foundation to make a vaccine for HIV and TB. And so we're doing interesting things. And then COVID came. <laughs> and um, so um, we had some assets and some ways to approach COVID. And, you know, I remember it was January 5th when our, our chief scientific officer, a guy named Skip Virgin, came to me and said, this is the big one. This is going to be a huge impact, and we should work on this. And so we started really early and pretty aggressively. And for a company like ours, you know, we made some big bets because we're not a huge company. We didn't want to stop the other programs. We had to add this to them, which means we had to staff up, hire more people, spend more money. Uh, we're bringing forward antibodies, uh, which now fortunately look like they're going to work. But we had to make hundreds of millions of dollars of commitments for manufacturing contracts in the future. And those are take or pay, right? So you pay for them whether or not your product succeeds and you need them or not. And so that's a huge, almost existential gamble for a company wow. like ours. Um, I mean, I don't, we wouldn't have made it if we thought it was truly existential, but it, it's close. Um, and so you know, now we've been focused on, on COVID as well as those other two. And obviously COVID's getting all the attention these days. Maybe, maybe you can comment a little more broadly for the audience about the spectrum of therapies um, and approaches that are being taken by the industry to COVID and uh, sure. you know, what the outlook looks like. Yeah, I'll start with vaccines. Um, and, uh, you know, they seem to get most of the news these days. Um, a lot of different approaches, Moderna and then Pfizer together with a company called BioNTech, a German company, are developing RNA-based vaccines, probably near and dear to your heart. Um, yes. that's, that's a new technology, uh, has not been tried on a large scale basis before. Um, you know, the early data, I would say, are kind of encouraging, but not certainly not conclusive. And uh, we'll see, you know, they're, they're each enrolling. For vaccine trials, you've got to enroll tens of thousands of patients. So I think their targets are 30 or 40,000 patients. Um, and we'll see how well they work. J&J um, &J and AstraZeneca, um, AstraZeneca working with Oxford University, are developing vaccines based on adenovirus, adenovirus. So human virus. They have different strains of adenovirus. Um, I, I, my view is J&J &J has the more promising of the two, uh, but 
that's just uh, I may mean, be biased more than based on any hard hard data. Uh, and then there are companies, uh, GSK and, and Sanofi are two really good vaccine companies working together on a more traditional vaccine approach, a protein with an adjuvant ongoing. So those are going. I, the early data, I would say, are somewhat encouraging. They, they do generate antibody responses, whether it's enough antibodies, the right kind of antibodies. Don't know how long the antibody response lasts. We don't know whether it works in all age groups, all portions of the population, we don't know. Um, and people tend to think of vaccines like a panacea. You get it and it's like, you know, smallpox when you're a kid or something. Yeah. If you get it, you're immune. Well, that's one extreme. The other ex example, it's not even extreme, might be flu, where, yeah. you know, you get it. And on average, the vaccine reduces transmission of flu by about 40%. And less than that in the elderly and the people who need it most. So we'll see where the vaccines go. Hopefully, I for all of our sakes, I hope they work really well. I I think it's unlikely they'll work sufficiently well in all segments of the population, and we'll need other approaches. So Which Lily and Regeneron in. and we and um, um, AstraZeneca are bringing forward antibodies. Um, Lily published actually really interesting data this morning to say their antibodies work. And their antibodies, again, very small numbers still. Uh, uh, but in their placebo group, uh, I think it was 2.9% of patients. These are er patients early in their COVID course, so they're not hospitalized. 2.9% uh, were hospitalized in the placebo group. and the treated group, 0.9%. So huge... call it from three to one, a two thirds reduction, okay. huge error bars around that number because the numbers are so small, but still pretty compelling that the antibodies are providing benefit for those patients. Um, right. You know, Regeneron has some data. We have some data. Um, uh, and over the course of the next few months, you know, everybody will have enough data to know to what extent the antibodies are, are working. But I think the early signs are that they're going to be. It's happening at a remarkably fast time scale. And, you know, you have a role as a CEO of a company, but you're also in a leadership role for the biotech industry at large uh, through an organization called Bio. Right. Um, can you maybe comment a little bit how, you know, how you wear those multiple hats and you know, yeah. how that, that Sure. Well, look, my, my primary responsibility is VR, right? That's, that's my day job. And yep. I have to make sure that our programs are going forward uh, rapidly and uh, we don't miss any beats here. So, so far, so good. We're on, we're on our way. Uh, you know, we went, just to give you an example, we started this, I said, on January 5th, saying we should find an antibody that is effective. And that entered clinical trials in August. So, you know, we, we found it, we had it manufactured, we got the regulatory approval, everything in, in seven months. That's a two to three year process in normal times. So incredibly accelerated. Lily and Regeneron did the same. Um, we signed a collaboration, you know, we're working together with GSK on this. We have a collaboration with them. 
That collaboration around COVID, from the initial phone call I had with Hal Barron, who's head of R&D at GSK, um, until we had a signed agreement, was three weeks. That never happens. In my, all my years, I've never had an agreement signed in three weeks. You know, if three months is fast. And uh, so COVID that, has brought. So COVID has together. changed the rules, right? Because it, it is a pandemic. There's a huge, people are dying every day. Right? And maybe this is a good place to, to ask a broader question because many of our audiences are, are engineers and, um, you know, the drug development is a, biotechnology is a very different type of activity. Maybe some of your thoughts about the differences uh, in, in, the, in biotech versus kind of traditional tech companies and maybe some of the opportunities for the, these smart young kids uh, to, to go out and change the world. Yeah, look, I think bi- look, biotech is so exciting because it's a mixture these days of science, of medicine, of data sciences, uh, biophysics, and you need to bring all of that together and um, and they all play in each other and they all complement each other. We have an amazing data sciences group uh, that, you know, they're actually based in, in San Diego. Um, incredible insight that, that we get and, and they get. And, uh, you know, MIT runs these um, uh, structural biology competitions. So they give you yes. a learning set of compounds to say, here is the activity of these compounds on this yep. target. And then they yep. give you another set of compounds to say, now you learn from these and tell us which of these others yep. are going to have the most effect. And then they run competitions to see who can do that. So yep. we've entered two, we won one and we're second in the other. So, pretty good. Um, so we're doing okay. And, um, but it's amazing, the insights. We, you know, we think now we have gene expression patterns that can um, predict which patients will have bad outcomes to COVID or flu uh, just based on the expression of lymphoid cells. Yeah, I mean, this is a remarkable, remarkable steps forward, uh, the technologies yeah. that are available. So, so um, the data sciences are incredible. The um, uh, you know, and the biology is, is amazing, and the genetics. And, you know, this, you're talking about it already, but, uh, you know, within the companies that you've led, you know, creating that cauldron of creativity and innovation, uh, which is so essential to any entrepreneurial exercise, you know, what kind of approaches have you taken to, to ensure that? I mean, that seems the essential ingredient. So, look, I, I think... You need the right people. I think the success of companies like ours is really dependent on the people. You need people who have a little bit of an iconoclastic attitude, who are, um, let's say, arrogant enough to think they can succeed where everybody else has failed, but humble enough to know that that probably won't happen. And so you have these kind of conflicting characteristics you need in the people and the organization. Right? And so the selection of the right people is absolutely critical. And, you know, a lot of people who are comfortable in larger companies are just not the right people, even if they have all the right expertise that, yeah. that you need. Absolutely. <clears throat> so you need that. You need a sense of, of, to instill a sense of urgency and you have to motivate people, right? <clears throat> like people... Don't come to work every day thinking, 
geez, I'm excited to go to work because if we do a good job, we'll make a lot of our money, a lot of money for investors who are already wealthy. Right? That is not something that gets me out of bed in the morning. Right? Uh, you need the motivation has to be I'm excited to go to work because if we succeed, we're going to improve the lives of a lot of people. And I think personally, because we have the ability to do that, we have the responsibility to do that. And so if so many people are suffering. And so, you know, I've had discussions with the boards along the years, you know, because there are certain people who believe that the function of a CEO is only to increase the value of the stock and, and do well by shareholders. Um, I personally don't want to be part of a company that does that and has that as their mode of operating. I, I think that's actually irresponsible. And of course you have shareholders, of course you have responsibilities to them um, and you have to generate a return. And if you don't do that, you won't be CEO forever. So you, it's not that you can't do that, but you can't do that as your sole focus. We have responsibilities to patients, we have responsibilities to our employees, we have responsibilities to the community, um, uh, to the environment. I mean, we have to operate in socially responsible and so the nice thing to me about the biotech industry is that its focus is on improving the world, on improving the lives of people who are suffering in one way or the other. And so if we succeed, then we have accomplished an important social good at the same time. If we do it thoughtfully, we can return a substantial return to, to ourselves and our investors. So I, I think it's, I, I, you know, you asked me at the beginning what I thought about my career. I never thought about this, but I can't envision having ended up in a better place. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable story and a remarkable voyage. And I think, you know, it certainly resonates with me and even more so I'm sure resonates with the students in the class that are part of the generation that I think really do want to make a difference and change the world. And, are, you know, are looking for avenues to, to do that. And, uh, you know, you're a shining example of that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all rooting for your success, <laughs> not just financially, but uh, in terms yeah. of your clinical trials and the success against not just coronavirus, but the, the next waves of infectious diseases that are sure yeah. to, to, to yeah. hit us. I'll ask one last question, which is, you know, what does what does the future of biotech hold? Um, you know, where, where do you see the, 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 the field going over the next 20 years? And no one's going to hold you to your predictions. <laughs> I, look, I, I, it's incredible. You know, if you think about the progress that we've made over the last 20 years and you extrapolate that forward, it's just incredible. But I think extrapolating it forward isn't sufficient because the pace at which we're advancing is accelerating. So you have to take this, the, the second derivative action, you know, of the thing. And that's really hard to imagine. But um, I think we'll be able to already starting to be able to manipulate genes. We understand the genetic basis of disease to intervene. Uh, to, we'll find ways to intervene safely. I mean, nobody intervenes now in um, uh, like changing genomes, right? Yep. You could change a genome with CRISPR or you can do other yep. things. Uh, there's still some safety concerns. Those are not adequately addressed yet. 
And then, of course, there are a lot of ethical concerns that people have as well. Sure. But over time, we'll figure out how to do that safely and change a gene that gives you a predisposition to atherosclerosis or Alzheimer's or whatever to avoid those, minimize those. And so I, I think the, you know, the combination of genetics and, and, you know, you can't figure all this out just by laboratory experiments. A lot of it has to be guided computationally. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, understanding brain circuits, being able to intervene in, um, you know, psychiatric issues, depression or, yeah, I think neurological diseases are a huge, huge, um, you know, yeah. so uh, I think area of opportunity. And also the aging population uh, in the world um, yeah. are all areas that will need focus. So if you, th- and if you think about now, or we, you know, pretty confident we can tell you if you were to, like, we, you know, we take a blood sample today and tell you if you get COVID, you are or you are not going to have a bad outcome. Uh, you know, if that were a simple diagnostic test that could be run by a hospital rather than a really complicated test, that would be huge, right? Then you could do your clinical trials only in those people who are going to have bad outcomes. So you would save money because you're not treating a lot of people who don't need your treatment. You, I think it's highly ethical to, to do that because, you know, every drug has side effects, and if no, and people aren't going to benefit or they don't need it, but you expose them to the side effects anyway, that's not really an ethical thing to do. Just for the audience, that's a term called pharmacogenomics, trying mm-hmm. to understand how your genetic makeup affects your response to drugs, which is, a, of course, a super exciting area of research and one that involves lots of computation and you know, lots of measurements and lots of analysis. Uh, the, the opportunities are immense. So all, I think all that's going to change. So, you know, the one thing that could get in the way, not the one thing, but, you know, we have to keep funding the industry well. Uh, it has to keep providing a return to investors so they, you know, keep funding it. Uh, you know, I don't think this is a discussion on drug prices, but there are certain solutions to drug prices that would crush that. I mean, there are other solutions that wouldn't. So it's not an insoluble problem, but some of the knee-jerk reactions, I think, would just crush it. So, um, you know, as long as we have the right social environment, um, I think, you know, the, you know, students who are now in school uh, can expect to have longer, healthier lives than, than we have. And we already have longer, healthier lives than my parents have. So... It's been remarkable. Uh, George, thank you so much. Maybe we'll open uh, this up to some questions in the Q&A. So the first question is, you know, how valuable uh, has your technical PhD been while leading a biotechnology firm? You know, and, and if you knew you would end up there, would, would you have still gone and gotten a PhD? And maybe I'll add to this, um, you know, uh, how'd you learn your business skills? Uh, uh, well, I, look, that's a personal question. For me, yeah, I enjoyed getting a PhD. I enjoy the science. I enjoy the R&D, and it does help running the company. We're an R&D-based company. So I don't have to be the best scientist in our organization, and I'm not. Um, but I have to know it enough to know who is, right, to ask the right questions and be able to, to manage it. And 
so much of the success of our company is based on the quality of the science that we do and the science and, and medicine as, as well. So yes, it's been helpful. You do as CEO have to manage, obviously the entire company, many of disciplines you don't have any personal experience in, manufacturing, and for me, commercial, um, you know, human resources, all the, all the people issues, finance. And so you just, you know, I've learned that kind of by osmosis. I didn't, I didn't do an MBA. Um, and, you know, I, when I worked for Bayer, a large farm company, one of the benefits of that is they send you to training courses if they think you have some potential. So, you know, I did some mini MBAs and things like that, but those aren't really that. I mean, they're pretty superficial. And so basically learn things as, as you go and you get some exposure and you ask some questions and you learn. My, my experience with most of this stuff is the principles are not that difficult, right? So, you know, the concept of a NPV, very straightforward. It's a very simple concept. Sitting down to do one, not that complicated, but it takes some, some learning. And, but what's crucial for that is the assumptions that you put into it. And so being able to, to learn enough to say, okay, this is entirely dependent on the assumptions that go into it. Let's question those assumptions and the rest is math. Then, um, you know, kind of going back to first principles, it gets you through a lot of things you don't have any formal training in. There's a related question, which I think you've already answered, which is how can people um, who don't have PhD, PhDs be involved in the commercialization of research? Well, we need people who, <laughs> who are involved in the commercialization. The company needs, I mean, we, even we who don't have any products to sell yet have a commercial group because you have to start planning for how to commercialize things well in advance of when you actually have them. You have to start, you have to understand the markets. I think one of the key things for companies I've taught for a long time is you have to solve problems that actually exist, not that you think exist. And that's not only scientific problems and, 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 you know, technical issues, it's commercial issues. You know, is there a need for this product? How would it be used? Are there some flaws in your thinking? So even if you're technically successful, no one's going to use it, right? And so you need to understand those issues. So you need people who understand the market, who can interact with the prescribers and the physicians and the health plans who are going to pay for this and Medicare and other agencies to understand whether what's important to them. How you George, George, without naming names, could you, can you give an example over, you know, the last 30 years or so of an example of that where, where a product was developed of which there was no use because there wasn't the commercialization plan. Oh, there've been many. <laughs> um, and it well, I, I give you the recent one. It's not that there's no use, like the PCSK9 inhibitors. These are new drugs yeah. that are really potent in uh, reducing uh, LDL cholesterol, reducing cholesterol. So for yeah. people who are not adequately controlled on statins, they can be a lifesaver. And so there are two or three of those now on the market. They are really good drugs, but they were priced at a level where all of the payers said, no, thank you. We're not paying for this. The benefit to our patients does not merit that cost. And so they're actually used very little and they are potentially life-saving drugs. And so that was an error, not in, 
the product put in, how to how to how to price introduce it. it into the marketplace. Gilead, when they introduced uh, their Hep C treatment, this is a treatment that cured hepatitis C, like ninety eight or ninety nine percent cure rate. So, and I think the one or two percent are people who just aren't compliant. You have to take pill every day for a period of time. Um, and they charged, you know, I think initially they charged forty thousand dollars for that treatment. They got so much grief for that. They got a lot of grief. Uh, and they charged it. It was, I, I, you know, basically it was a thousand dollars a pill, right? Because you had to take pill once a day, and if yeah. you just divide it up as a thousand. So people looked at the pills and said a thousand dollars for that Dollar pill. Yeah. And so um, when you actually do the cost-benefit relationship, they save more money to the healthcare system by sure. avoiding cancer sure. and liver cirrhosis sure. than it costs. Sure. Um, but it was the cosmetic, so they didn't deal it, yeah. with that. So it didn't deal it, with it well. It was, most of those patients are on Medicaid, and they didn't talk with the state Medicaid agencies and prepare them, so they, they all had their budgets just completely ruined, and so they fought pushback. So there are ways that you need to prepare the market to interact with payers that are crucial to the success of the product. George, can I ask you two quick questions before we get cut up, which I think are good ones. One is, um, you know, who is a CEO or industry leader uh, that you look up to beside yourself? Uh, uh, Ken Frazier. Ken is the CEO of Merck. Uh, He is, um, I think, incredibly capable, decent, um, thoughtful, uh, and has done an amazing job uh, uh, leading Merck to be a really innovative uh, company. So, I, you know, I got to work with him back when I was at Biogen um, sure. and uh, have a huge amount of respect for Ken. So he's at the, he's at the top of my list. And then um, the, uh, I guess the final question that I'll go through is um, what's your advice for someone looking to enter the biotech in- industry as an undergrad? Do you think that focusing on honing bio knowledge via undergraduate or graduate studies is important to do before entering industry? Or you do, do you recommend entering the industry in college itself via internship? Um, yeah. Look, I think you should do what you're passionate about and what you enjoy because my experience is, it's when you do that, that you do the best. And so achieve excellence to the extent that you can in a field that's of interest to you. So many different fields are relevant to uh, biotech companies, biology, commercial, finance, legal, uh, you know, technical manufacturing, data sciences, so many ways to get involved in the industry. Pick what you like and pick where you want, where you have some passion and where you don't mind and actually enjoy spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week working at it. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.